Hi, Horror Honeys! We have an amazing deal for you from Adam and Eve, America's favorite adult store. Use our code HORROR for 50% off almost any item, plus free shipping. Yes, you heard that right. 50% off almost any item, plus free shipping. Head to adamandeve.com to find something special for yourself or someone else. That's code HORROR, H-O-R-R-O-R, at checkout for 50% off plus free shipping. Order now and get ready to f- We're married! Hi everyone! Hi listeners! Ha- happy Valentine's Day! Happy Valentine's Day! It's a day for love. It's a day for lovers. It's a day for romance. It is a day for a romance. And maybe it's a day to learn a little something, too. If you're listening right now. Because that's what the podcast is about. I mean, it's a sexy, sexy Wednesday, right? Tuesday? Uh, I think it's a wet. I think I can double check. I think Valentine's Day is a Wednesday this year. So if you're listening to this on Tuesday, yeah. you're, you're so nearly sexy. You're right there. Yeah, but so it's a sexy, sexy weekday. You're so on my the edge. You, all right. <laughs> ran it in um but you might have a sexy sexy commute which means you're listening to us and we were like how do we how do we do this how do we bring the people what they want how can we celebrate love and romance but we, in all its forms yeah we keep the valentine's day energy yes and we figured we're married we both got married when we ghosted you exactly so that's not the reason why they didn't like keep us <laughs> from you or anything um they're very nice you'll see um well i buried the lead oh my god you'll see today so yeah there it is so we are um going to have our husbands on for this episode Woo! Husbands. part one is gonna be sam's husband my husband adam and part two is gonna be my husband chris and just to keep mix it up what they're talking about really has nothing to do with valentine's day or romance the Valentine's Day is just that we're in love with them. Yeah. So that's, if you can hear the love through the microphone, isn't that a beautiful thing? They're supportive. Yes. And wonderful. Yes. And. And they wrote whole little bits to and talk they to both, us about. they both have niche little interests. Yes. And so let's start. That sounded a little demeaning of me. They have interests. <laughs> they both have. Because they're humans. They both have little hobbies. Yeah. That sounds demeaning too. <laughs> uh, that, they, okay. that they do when we're busy. Yeah, and exactly. So... When they're not staring into our eyes lovingly <laughs> or buying us flowers. And so let's find out about the niche little interest of my husband to start. Right? Adam. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you for having me. There he is. Wow. A powerful start, Adam. <laughs> he, you, did he do such a good job? You're like looking at him like, oh, that's my man. A great beginning. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, well, yeah. Hi. Uh, I'm Sam's husband, Adam. Thank you guys for having me on the podcast. Anytime. Most of your listeners don't know me personally, so I'm going to share a little information about myself. Ooh, Ooh thank you. And this is relevant to the story I'm going to tell. I'm not just going to state facts about myself for the next 30 minutes. You can. You can. <laughs> I know. I, I thank you guys for giving me the freedom to. Make but, the episode yours, Adam. Um, I'm not going to do that. But so here's two facts about me. One is I'm a huge hockey fan and I watch a lot of NHL games. And two, I'm also, uh, and I'll say by quite a wide margin, not a millionaire. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, I know both those things are true. Yes. I did not know that. I'm sitting in your house right now, and it's gorgeous. Thank, Thank you. you. It's gorgeous. It's in a good, safe area. <laughs> and housing prices right now are shit whacked out of proportion. Yeah, so, so true. Could have fooled me. Uh, so appreciate true. that. But yes, not a millionaire uh, by a lot. So uh, according to Forbes, uh, NHL hockey teams are worth, on average, a little over a billion dollars. And the least valuable team is the Arizona Coyotes. They're still worth about $450 million. I don't think I've even heard of Yeah. <laughs> so it would be wild for me, with my not millions of dollars, to buy an NHL hockey team. Yeah, if they're worth billions with a B. Yeah. And yet, that exact scenario actually happened. And that's the story I'm going to tell you today. What? Yeah. A non-millionaire bought... A... Ha... But how, Adam? <laughs> We're, uh, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Adam's like, get ready. Adam, <laughs> Strap in. <laughs> what a great intro. What a great teaser. The, Thank you. My interest is peaked. Yes. You laid a good foundation. <laughs> yes. Slow us away. Tell us all about it. All right. 
So to understand the real impact of this story, first I need to give you guys a little background about Long Island. Ooh, uh, I have some. And the New York Islanders. Mm -hmm. So you guys are familiar with Long Island. We've been a few times together. Allie, that's where your husband is from. That is where Chris is from. We can make fun of him later about it. Yeah, so hopefully he agrees with the things I'm about to say. Um, So in the 50s and 60s, the population of Long Island exploded as people were moving out of New York City. And by the 70s, the towns of Long Island were doing well for themselves. And there was a push from the people of Long Island to be seen as their own thing instead of just like a suburb of uh, New York City. Yeah, they're they're still working on that. (laughs) (laughs) So part of that new identity was the New York Islanders. Uh, The NHL founded the Islanders in 1972. And it was a big deal for Long Island because they finally had their own sports team. This wasn't New York City sports team. It was Long Island sports team. Yay! Long Island. Good Long Island. So there was, of course, some skepticism that Long Island could support a professional sports team. And to those skeptics' credit, there were money issues right away. Oh, no! (laughs) But in 1976, uh, they were sold to a minority owner by the name of John Pickett. And Pickett was able to restructure the team's finances... And uh, mostly through a very large contract with the local cable company, uh, he was able to build a competitive hockey team. And by 1980, the team was unbelievably good. Wow. Like, one of the best teams in history good. We love to prove the haters wrong on Long Island. So do Long Islanders. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so they won four Stanley Cups in a row from 1980 to 1983. And they almost won a fifth. They lost in the finals in 1984. So they won 19 straight playoff series, and that still stands as a record for most consecutive playoff series wins. Nobody's ever come close. Oh my god, our Long Island Kings. Yes, they were very, very good. So in the early 80s, they were the best team in the NHL, and Long Island really embraced the team, and the team also really embraced Long Island. Uh, At one point, an interviewer asked the goaltender, Billy Smith, what's it like to bring a cup to New York City? And Billy Smith said, it's not in New York. It's on Long Island. <laughs> Amen. Her words never spoke. Hell yeah. Uh, but towards the end of the late 80s, uh, their great players were starting to retire, and the team just wasn't as good as they were before. The team's record was starting to get worse and worse, and attendance at games was starting to drop. So by the time 1990 rolled around, the team was r- running into financial issues again. Ugh. And they stayed afloat through the early 90s, but it was clear that they needed a new owner. And it was a tough situation for the Islanders. The fans wanted new ownership. You know, they wanted someone who would help bring them back to their former glory. But there was also a lot of concern that a new owner would want to move the team off of Long Island to a more populous area. I was like, watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Populous, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, because they need more, just like more people means more butts and seats. Exactly. Okay. I don't know, Long Island's got a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) So all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, a potential new owner showed up by the name of John Spano. Uh, John Spano was a billionaire from Texas, and he was passionate about hockey. He wanted to keep the team Long Island, and he wanted to build them back to their former glory. In interviews, he seemed kind of shy and humble, so this was like a match made in heaven. The fans were thrilled. Uh, Old ownership was happy they had someone to sell to. And so there was a call between the NHL and John Spano and his attorneys, and the NHL was satisfied with the outcome. So on October 10th, 1996, it was announced that John Spano would buy the New York Islanders. Sounds Sounds great. There was only one problem. What's that? John Spano was not a billionaire from Texas. He was a con man. He wasn't from Texas. Uh, Not originally, no. Oh, so both lives. (laughs) He did live in Texas at the time, but he was not from Texas. Oh, boy. Uh, He was a con man who was pretending to be rich, and he couldn't actually pay for the team. Yikes. So how did he pay for the team? <laughs> Crazy that he like got off a call from the NHL and they were like, yeah, this all yeah. sounds great. Yeah, what did he do? Write a check? Like, how does this work? I'll, I'll get into that. But so <laughs> He just bought it. So what John Spano actually was, was an owner of a leasing company in Dallas. And through his work at the leasing company, he met a lot of rich people. And he learned how to present himself as being rich and became a part of social circles that were generally reserved for very wealthy people. So he knew the right people, and he he walked the walk, so to speak, um, but he didn't really have a lot of money to his name. 
J. Gatsby Corp. Yeah, <laughs> really is. So oddly enough, this wasn't the first time John Spano tried to buy an NHL team. Oh, John! Uh, the he year did before, this before, the year before in 1995, uh, Spano, who as I said lived in Texas, uh, tried to buy a 50% stake in the closest team to him, the Dallas Stars. Uh, they reached a tentative agreement, but then some oddities started popping up. Oh, some oddities. <laughs> yeah. The the Stars owner eventually pulled the plug on the deal after there were a couple weird incidents, uh, including the owner went to visit Spano's mansion, mansion in quotes, uh, in the suburbs oh. of Dallas, and they found that the house was completely unfurnished. Great. So it was a gorgeous mansion that had nothing in exactly. it. Exactly. Or was it just maybe a normal house with nothing in it? Oh. Who knows? And Spano went to dinner with some executives from the Dallas Stars, and Spano made the Stars executives pick up the tab, <laughs> even though he is reportedly a billionaire who, you know, this would be like pennies to him. Yeah, when you're trying to wine and dine someone to buy their hockey team, it's then very weird to be like, so are we splitting it? I really only have a salad. Yeah, I don't know if I would even do the sort of coy, oh, let me reach for mm. my wallet thing. If it was a billionaire, it's like, you're a billionaire. Yeah. You should be mm-hmm. paying for this. You just have to. You should be paying for this as you should be paying for everything. Yeah. <laughs> So that deal fell through. Uh, Right afterwards, he tried to buy the Florida Panthers, another hockey team. Uh, That fell through when the current owner decided that he wasn't going to sell the team. So Spano's first couple of attempts failed. (laughs) But try number three. But try number three. So basically, through his first couple of attempts, they showed him how the process worked. So in 1996, when he tried to buy the Islanders, he knew, like, what information lived with what people... And basically figured out the lies he needed to tell in order to get the deal done. Oh, that's so sneaky of him. Does nobody email? Do these teams not? I mean, it's ninety. I mean, it was ninety. Nobody... They couldn't just Google him. Like it was ninety six. It was still maybe they could Google. I don't call know each other on Google the started, telephone. But... Fair if enough. You must. <laughs> like, how does nobody know about this? So when Spano asked to buy the. Uh, New York Islanders, he claimed that his net worth was $230 million. Spano's attorney verified that information, and the NHL accepted that, which I found weird because it was Spano's attorney. So, like, he hired the attorney. Yeah, he has an incentive. So, like, I don't think the attorney knew he was lying. I think Spano just, like, gave him a number, and the attorney didn't, like, work for Spano, so he didn't really have an incentive to, like look further into it so he was just like yeah he's worth that and the nhl was like all right great uh <laughs> and enough. like i said you know he ran in the social circles with rich people and i think people were just like you would have to be truly insane to make <laughs> up that you have this amount of money that's i feel like that's the theme of so many con con men is just like if you have the audacity a lot of people will let you get away with stuff oh a hundred percent A hundred percent. And it seems like John Spano has the audacity. Yeah, I think that it's like, it's all about panache. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Panache is going to get you further than hard work, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So he did that. He also falsified bank documents that verify, you know, they look like documents coming from a bank that said, I have this amount of money in my bank accounts. So uh, everything seemed good to go. Um, oddly enough, despite him trying to buy two teams in the past, uh, those previous teams claimed that the NHL never reached out to ask them about their experiences with John Spana. To your point, Allie, gotta pick up the phone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, is no one, like, in charge of maybe even just, like, mailing them all, like, NHL merchandise? (laughs) (laughs) And, like, being like, oh, by the way, did you hear what happened? A crazy man in Texas tried to buy Mm -hmm. two, two hockey teams. (laughs) So uh, the NHL gave their thumbs up to the deal, and Spano agreed to buy the Islanders from John Pickett for $165 million, which, again, he did not have. God. (laughs) How's this going to shake out is what I'm wondering. So the closing date was set for April. This happened in October. So he had about six months to come up with the money. Mm -hmm. During those six months, Spano falsified more documents about his net worth. And he was able to secure an $80 million loan from Fleet Bank here in Boston. Oh. So he got about half the money he needed from a bank in Boston by faking documents. 
and he needed the other half, about $85 million. He's Anna Delvying. He's Anna Delvying. This is what Anna Delvey did. I so don't get true. that reference. Oh, you don't need to. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> I'll Google it <laughs> Most afterwards. Most of the women listening right now yeah. will. Are going to know um, that. We'll explain it later. Cool. Um, so he negotiated to split the remaining $85 million into five payments of $17 million. So on the day that they were closing the sale, he only needed to have $17 million. Okay. Which, I mean, is still a crazy amount of money, but it's not the 85. So there were a couple different ways he was trying to get this money. He was working on a deal with the cable company that would have given him the money he needed to at least pay that $17 million. Uh, he was also trying to negotiate a new stadium deal with Nassau County. Oh. And as part of that deal, he was asking for money up front. Uh, which he said was in order to secure property rights for the stadium. He was actually going to use it to make the payments for the team. (laughs) No, surely not. (laughs) (laughs) But Nassau County's bureaucracy came in handy this time. It took him too long and he wasn't able to get the deal done. Now that sounds In time for the closing day. to me. (laughs) Uh, So closing day finally came and John Spano didn't have the money to pay for the team. The lawyers said that they couldn't close the deal. But there was some negotiation between Spano's lawyers and the lawyers for Pickett, uh, the current owner. And during those negotiations, Spano produced a letter from Lloyd's Bank in London, which would later turn out to be fake, claiming that they were working on wiring the money and it should be there the next day. And so Pickett's lawyers agreed to move forward with the sale. Outrageous. So despite not having paid the money... On April 7th, 1997, John Spano officially became the owner of the New York Islanders. That's crazy. They're wiring the money? <laughs> I, or, I already wired you the money. Oh my God, that's so crazy. That's so crazy. Yeah, so he was the owner of the Islanders. He assumed ownership and immediately started acting like the owner. He signed several players to the team at wow. about $2.5 million in payroll. He was also part of a decision to relieve then head coach Mike Milbury of his coaching duties and hire a new one. Damn, so he fired a coach on like day one? Well, yeah, well, he... so it wasn't, there was a weird thing where he was GM and coach. I'm not going to get into the particulars of it, but <laughs> Milbury wasn't completely fired. He just became the GM and they hired a new head coach. Okay, okay. Um, And uh, yeah, so he was like, as far as anyone was concerned, he was the owner of the team at this point. Um, But as time went on, Spano just kept coming up with excuses that were getting more and more ridiculous as to why he couldn't, you know, make these payments to to pick at the old owner. Yeah. Uh, At one point, he said he wired the $17 million, but he had actually wired $1,700. And he claimed that he had just typed it in wrong. That's so smart. (laughs) I can't wait. That's so like, because then, of course, the first thing you would think would be like, oh, you left out. Five zeros. Okay, you two are both nerds, so I don't think you did this. But um, I I remember once you you were supposed to like have an essay in by a certain time at night, and so the classic move was you send um, the teacher like a like like a, your like, draft yeah, or like half a bit done, and you're like, oh, it just got yeah, and you up. like pulls like pulls something code out, and it, like it just comes up as like an error mm. message. And then it's like, oh, sorry, there was something wrong with the formatting. Here's my essay. They don't see it till the next day, so you have more time. There you go. Um, I don't think that I bear the same amount of moral, um, you know, responsibility for that. This seems kind of worse, but yeah, it's the same idea. <laughs> and again, like, to me, it seems like they should have realized this was a problem day two when that first 17 mm. million didn't hit the bank. Frankly, this is on them at this point. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is like just negligence. Instead, they're just letting this guy make huge team decisions because they're like, he told us we'd get this 17 million. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he walked in the right social circles and he acted the right way, I guess, and was just coming up with excuses. And I think at this point, too, I think it was really just between him and Pickett, the old owner. Mm-hmm. Like, I think at this point, the NHL was just like, great, deal's done, everything's good. Um, so, like, the NHL wasn't really, like, trying to figure out something was going on here. They were just like, oh, yeah, we're good to go. So, uh, yeah, he he made that uh, $1,700 payment, claiming it was supposed to be $17 million. Maybe the most ridiculous uh, excuse he came up with was at one point the IRA bombed a bank in London. And he said that 
he had a courier at the bank with his money and that the bombing prevented the courier from completing the transaction. Oh my God. <laughs> Big yikes. He was like on the news. That's like, a what, wild one. What world yeah. event can I blame? So he was just coming up with like excuse after excuse. And like at this point, the cracks are starting to show, right? Like um, there was definitely something weird going on. So at this point, there's a newspaper called Newsday, a newspaper on Long Island. <laughs> I'm so and... sorry. There's a newspaper called Newsday. <laughs> I'm just, it's just so classic Long Island. <laughs> and I think also there is a Long Island energy of like, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah he's, he's, fine. he's fine. This is fine. He's good. He's going to keep the Islanders He's going to keep the Islanders on Long Island. He, he was like, he a local. like one of us. Yeah, at that point, he was kind of a hero to the fans there. Um, you know, they were it. super happy to have him. But so Newsday catches wind of this and they start investigating his financial history. And also, like, finally, the previous owner's patience ran out. And Pickett called the NHL and told them about the missing money. And this was in June, so a couple months after the closing. Um, and it was the first time that the NHL really found out, like, oh, there's something going wrong here. Mm. So they basically said to Spano, you have one week to come up with the money for the first payment and you have to like re-verify to us that you actually have the money that you say you do. So like he's kind of screwed at this point. Yeah. So he has one week to come up with the money. There was one final chance for him to get the money that he needed. Spano used to stay at the Garden City Hotel, which is a very fancy hotel on Long Island where he would party with all of his fake money. (laughs) (laughs) And an employee at the hotel suggested that the owner of the hotel could be interested in buying a stake in the team for that $85 million that Spano needed to finish paying for his team. It's anybody's game. So Who wants a hockey team? Yeah, basically? so Spano began working on that deal. But at this point, like, newspaper articles were coming out about his fake past and his history with missing payments and with defaulting on loans. And it was becoming clear to everybody that Spano wasn't who he said he was. Mm -hmm. And the deal wasn't ready. The deal with the hotel wasn't ready at the end of the week that the NHL said he had. So Spano once again falsified a bank document that showed he had the money that he said he did. I think he had been under a tremendous amount of stress for months at this point. And he did a pretty sloppy job with this forgery. Investigators said that the letter used different fonts that the bank would typically use. I don't know exactly what that means. I hope it was written in, like, Comic Sans. That would be hilarious. And then they also found out that the fax was sent from his company's fax machine, not a bank's fax machine. Incredible. So that's a little 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 suspicious. suspicious. Also, right around that time, Newsmax released this huge expose, like, front page of the paper, big article, revealing that he was a fraud. It went into details showing that he had lied about his net worth. He had lied about the size of the business that he owned and that he'd lied about like details of his past, like where he was from and where he went to college and stuff like that. So everybody knows what's up at this point. Uh, You know, the jig's up. Uh, Both Spano and the hotel employee that he was working with say that they were within a week of settling this deal. So they both claim that if this had gone on for another week or so, he likely would have been able to come up with the money. So like at this point, you know, there were articles about him and probably that big newspaper article was like a done deal anyway. So I don't really think it's true that like he would have gotten away with it, but it's pretty crazy that it got that close to just him having all the money and paying for the team. Like, yeah. Like, it was very, very close. He had zero of those dollars and he almost got all of the dollars. <laughs> it's like, can I pay for lunch? No. Do I own a hockey team? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, like, yes, he would have had to pay back those loans. So, like, it wouldn't have just been the end of it. But, I mean, maybe with revenue for the team. Who knows? Um, so, yeah. The jig's up. Everybody knows what's happening. And... There's still a big problem, which is that technically, even though he missed those payments, Spano is the owner of the Islanders. <laughs> they closed on the deal and he signed the title. Yeah. So Spano owns the Islanders. And the NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, who is a career lawyer, he claimed that th- he's not really the owner because the NHL Board of Governors hadn't approved the sale yet because that was waiting on uh, him finishing paying all his stuff. 
And he's probably right. I think courts would have definitely eventually ruled in the NHL's favor. But it would have meant that a long legal battle Mm. trying to figure all this out. And uh, the Islanders probably definitely would have gone bankrupt in the time that it took to get this all sorted out. So the NHL and Spano negotiated... And Spano agreed to give the team back to Pickett, and in return, Pickett agreed not to sue Spano for breach of contract. Wow. So yes. just like a my bad. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there was never a lawsuit between the former employee or between the NHL and Spano. They were essentially like, just give the team back and... No harm. No, no harm, foul. no foul, basically, yeah. <laughs> Um, but soon after, uh, with the information that the NHL gave the federal government and from the Newsmax report, federal prosecutors arrested Spano and charged him with bank fraud, wire fraud, and forgery. Because he was still messing with those because documents. Because he did a lot of document work and... Yeah, I was just like, I'm going to be so mad if he doesn't go to prison. Yeah, no, it's, prison, it's kind of a weird fine? mix of like, I mean, he did do a lot of fraud with documents and also, people weren't doing the due diligence that they were supposed to That's do. That's obviously true. So there's a lot of blame on both sides, but he certainly did do fraud. So. Yeah. so yeah, they charged him with bank fraud, wire fraud, and forgery. Spano, still to this day, feels that he was treated unfairly. <laughs> of course he does. Uh, his lawyer says that he sees himself as a team owner with legal troubles, right. not a con man who almost bought a hockey team. <laughs> Or I guess briefly did buy a sort hockey of team. stumbled half-assed <laughs> yeah. into buying a hockey team. And Spano originally wanted to plead not guilty. And eventually his lawyers convinced him that there was no way he was going to win and uh, convinced him to accept a plea deal. So as part of that plea deal, Spano apologized for his mistakes. Uh, but based on his actions since, he clearly did not learn a single thing. Uh, after he pled guilty and he was awaiting his sentencing... He rented a luxury apartment in Philadelphia and did not pay rent on it. Love that. Uh, the feds eventually found out about that and put him back in jail <laughs> without bail this time. In 2000, he was sentenced to six years, about six years. Uh, he got out in 2004 with five years of supervision. I don't know exactly what that means. But within a year of getting out, he was arrested again for defrauding businesses by promising to get them loans and then pocketing the fees that he charged for doing that and not actually getting them the loans. He just loves fraud, yeah, man. He got sentenced to five more years for that, and he was released in 2009. Uh, then in 2014, he was arrested again for stealing from his employer, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2015, and he's set to be released in 2024. Oh my god. Which I thought was next year, but I'm just now realizing that's this year. That's soon. So that's fun. <laughs> he could be on his way. To his next, <laughs> yeah, I don't know when in 2024. Right Maybe now. he's out, honestly. What's he going to do next? Um, Probably defraud someone. Probably defraud someone. So if, yeah, listeners, yeah. if uh, someone by the name of John Spano is trying to do a business deal with you, uh, look, just look into it more. Maybe there's more John just Spanos. More. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt an innocent John Spano in this, but... <laughs> Um, but do your due diligence. Do your due diligence, for sure. Um, oh <laughs> so, yeah. He was asked if, given the chance, uh, would he try to buy the New York Islanders again? And he basically said, yes, I would. <laughs> and he's confident he would be successful this time. And in a way, you have to respect that. <laughs> in I a know. way, you a little have to respect it. He, here's the thing about him. He knows what he's about. He knows how he wants. He's about writing a bad check, and he's about owning a hockey team. Yeah. <laughs> that's what he likes. And that's what America rewards. Yeah. Um, this yeah. really reminds me of uh, the Fire Festival guy. Was mm. it Billy McFarland? Billy McFarland. It's giving the same, like, just white man audacity yes. of, like, yeah, it'll, it'll it's going to work it's out. Hard, yeah. We'll find the money. It's going to be fine. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's Spano's story. As for the Islanders, John Picka eventually found another buyer. He ended up selling it, selling the Islanders for $30 million more million than in the deal he made with Spano. Oh. Uh, so in a weird way, this actually worked out very well for John Pickett. So for the Islanders, yeah, as much, uh, much to the disappointment of their Long Island fans, uh, the owners of the Islanders moved them off of Long Island and into the Barclays Center in Brooklyn in 2015. They were supposed to stay there permanently, but that move ended up being a bit of a disaster. 
the Barclays Center was originally built for basketball. Mm-hmm. And so it was built so that you can see a basketball court. And hockey rinks are bigger than basketball courts. Ah, so when they <laughs> put the hockey rink in, there were parts of the rink that you couldn't see while you were sitting in the stadium. You're telling me that you can't just flood a basketball court <laughs> and freeze it? No, Apparently not. I disagree. So that didn't work out. Um, and then uh, at the end of 2021... Uh, the Islanders started playing in a new stadium built for them in Elmont, New York, which is technically on Long Island. Hey. Like, so technically on Long Island. <laughs> like, the road it's on, the other side of that road is in Queens. Interesting. But the Incredible. side it's on Incredible. is technically Long Island. We'll take it. So I guess that counts. And I think Long Islanders are happy with it. Uh, you know, it's certainly better for them than the stadium being in Brooklyn. And it's a pretty nice stadium, too. I had a chance to go. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. There you go. So it all worked out. So it all worked out, <laughs> I think. Cautious optimism. We love an, a cautiously optimistic ending. But I think the most important thing, Adam, is what you said. Beware of any John Spanos. Beware of any John Writing Spanos. you a check. Or if somebody says they have, what, $85 million? Just <laughs> Maybe double check. Just double check, yeah. yeah. In a source that isn't directly from that person. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, that's the story. If anyone listening wants more info, a lot of this comes from the ESPN 30 for 30 called Big Shot. Uh, it's definitely worth a watch if you're interested. Um, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thank you guys for having me. And um, you did an amazing job. Thanks. Adam, you did a great job. And I'm so excited to watch Chris try to top that. Because oh. I don't think he can. A competitive spirit. Um, no. but- <laughs> <laughs> you guys are going to fight in your in your Absolutely. Yeah, That's what his, driveway later. his portion's about is just how we're just fighting. Gonna- and weirdly, by the time we get out, you transition to playing a board game. Yes. <laughs> but that whole time in between. It's because we've tired ourselves out. It's because you've exhausted yourselves <laughs> from physical altercation. Makes a lot of sense. Well, you're going to be have a chance to settle the score <laughs> later. But uh, thank you so much, Adam. No thank problem. You, Adam. Thank you, guys. Okay, everyone. We're back. We are back. With my husband. Hello. Ooh. Hello. That's my that's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a quick husband swap. Not the kind you're thinking not of. Not the kind you're thinking of. It's Valentine's Day, but oh, it's not. Boy. Let's be real. Honestly. <laughs> Chris, I am so glad you're here. Um, you are my husband, right? Still? I think so. Good. I'm glad. That's good. I was there. I, I saw you guys sign those papers. That's true. I think you had to be legally involved in that. Oh, I was a witness. I yeah, remember you were that a now. Witness. Are those papers legally binding? Is, oh, that, I, is that what I it's about? I'm hurt that you asked that question. <laughs> well, luckily, fine. he signed his name as Christ Garblin, so I don't no. think that's legal. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? This is the worst Valentine's Day I've ever had. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, I have to say, honey, I... You know that I have all the faith in the world in you, right? Um, but Adam did a very good job just now. <laughs> and he talked about Long Island. And he talked about journalism. He and, was really kind of in your fucking and those lane. Are, yeah, those, that's your lane, isn't it? So do you have anything maybe to say to Adam in response to what was pretty clearly a call out? <laughs> I'll say. Um, I, I mean, I... I heard what Adams had to say. I, I know what Adam talked about. I was going to say that I feel that me going second is incredibly lopsided <laughs> topics-wise. I don't have anything ill to say about Adam. <laughs> I don't have a bad word. All right, very Adam. political, what you just said. All, all I have to say is that <laughs> his topic and my topic feel worlds apart. <laughs> but that's i'm horrified spirit is two topics yeah it's true it's true don't mesh (laughs) mine feels like a real downer oh no (laughs) happy valentine's day honey what are you gonna be talking about children in the civil war (laughs) (laughs) that's so dark (laughs) and you heard that right you heard that right. Not children during the Civil War. <laughs> children in the Civil War. Jesus. Oh, God. <laughs> That's good. Look, oh, God. The show is called I'm Horrified. 
<laughs> and you're bringing you're bringing I fire today. I can tell. I couldn't be bringing anything that would be misconstrued as possibly good. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> you are a stickler for the truth. You are you are very purposeful when it comes to that. And I will say, like uh, many old men, which is what you are, you are in the inside an 85 year old man. Um, who has, is just reading a newspaper on a rocking chair. You are very interested in the Civil War. Oh. Uh, so that's one of your little, that's I'm one a, of your little interests. I'm a history buff. Yeah. You're a history buff. I, I can't say that I've, I've done a deep dive into the Civil War, but I, I enjoy American history. I think when you start painting the miniatures, that's when we'll really get in to time. obsession territory. Yeah. And that's, I don't feel like we're far off from that. Adam really wants to get into Warhammer miniatures. But he's like, I know when I start, I'll spend $500,000. Like, he's like, I just know that's a hobby that's going to take me for a ride. That's what they can do that. And he's not ready to do that at this time. The two of them can do that while we record. Perfect. We've we've often joked about how uh, Adam and Chris... Because they're hanging out while, because, you know, we're all friends. We yes. all want to hang out. We um, met. So Chris and Adam will hang out while we're recording. Um, and we have often encouraged them to start their own podcast. That would be great. A foil podcast, if you will. <laughs> but, I mean, this is the first step. I'm now terrified to say this, but, honey, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we start with uh, in 1861. Ooh, right? 1861. Right. So, so the Civil War runs from 1861 to 1865. It's four years of North versus South. God, I felt like it was so much longer. I mean, it so feels much, like it should have been. So much bad stuff happened. Uh, yeah, it's the. I mean, the, the bloodiest battles on American soil. Uh, Americans fighting Americans. Um, so I, I think the first question that I want to start with, or the, the, the way that I broke this down was, what was life like in 1861? And just a few things to touch on here, which is that the United States is largely rural, right? Mm-hmm. We're an agricultural economy. Life is slow. There's not much <laughs> to do. All right. It and sucks. It sucks there. There's the, no TV or anything. The average life expectancy is around 40 years old. Rough. Yikes. Rough. Yeah. So we'd all be deep into over midlife crises. You would. I mean, certainly people lived longer than that. But you have to think about like, I mean, in this way, to this day, it still matters around hygiene and your means and your, your status in mm. society. But at that point in time, I think it really mattered. Yeah, you that's know? real. So keeping those things in mind, we go into the first real question of, of all this is, which is why would boys want to join the war? Mm, I I guess I guess my first question would rather be who allowed this? We, we'll, why we're is gonna this get to happening? That. Would, I don't would think you rather, any of them wanted to Do you to want me to go war. over that first? No, not necessarily. I would. Think... I don't want to micromanage you at all either. So I don't want to. I don't want to guide you in any way. Wow, scenes so... from a marriage, you guys. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So basically, what what happens is this: in 1861, you have to be 21 years old to join the military. In early 1862, Congress lowers that age to 18. Yikes. <laughs> because I mean, they Still need adults. They need, right. And, and, and it's been 18 since then, mm-hmm. right? Um, that just makes me think like, they're just like, man, we need more fodder for the war machine. Yeah, Let's absolutely. lower the age. Well, that's definitely a big component of what we're talking about here. Yeah. So in, in 18, or February 1862, Congress lowers that age. The, the, the law has been too that, um, you know, Lincoln allows minors to join the military as long as they have the consent of their parents. Oh. Um, and the other thing you have to remember here, too, is that at the time, there are, whether or not we agree with them now, there are roles that young boys can have in the military. The, the drummer boy, for example, is a mm. position that captures a lot of patriotic imagination. And still to this day, it, yeah. you know, I, I, they kind of live in that like weird subsect of like bat boys. I sort you of know? thought that was like a like a more of a fun slang term, like ah oh, the drummer boy, but he's actually nineteen. Well, they yeah. were they were important in in um, you know when warfare was much more rudimentary because it had more to do about um, uh, signaling positions and stages of battle. Oh, the drums oh. met stuff. Yeah, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I just thought it was like for a vibe. So that I makes, also thought it was. For I a mean, vibe. that makes so, sense that it had a purpose. Uh, some of it. Now, I'm going to be honest. I did not research heavily on that. I'm not an expert, but I would imagine that some of it. Yeah, if you're marching in the battle, you need to build the morale of your troops. Mm-hmm. A snare drum will do that. So true. I'm thinking about the scene in Mad Max Fury Road when they strap the guy <laughs> with the electric guitar to the front of the of the van. It feels like the Civil War was just like that for children. Both are incredibly violent. <laughs> so people can join without their parents' consent. But here's here's the, the, the rub. Many of them find ways to join without their parents' consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, something to quote. I, there's a, a webpage maintained by the University of Houston on uh, a lot of this. There's certainly a wealth of uh, reading material on children in the Civil War. But quote, uh, heavy casualties led c- recruiting officers to look the other way when underage boys tried to enlist, and thousands participated in the conflict as drummers, messengers, hospital orderlies, and often as fully-fledged soldiers. Mm. So there's non-combat positions, but certainly some of them were soldiers. And, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But as the University of Houston page says, their motives for enlisting varied including patriotism and a desire to escape the boring routine of farm life or an abusive family. Oh, that's so sad. You know? And there's a lot of um, uh, firsthand accounts that have been collected over letters and later interviews from surviving veterans. And uh, there, there's, it's interesting because it's truly diverse in like, the, the reasons why someone would be motivated to, to join war. Other than the obvious, which is if you're young, you don't understand exactly what you're signing up for. Yeah. But a lot of them had older brothers who were going off to war and they wanted to, you know, they idealized doing the same. Yeah. Well, what's the, the poem about the old lie? It is right and proper to die for your country. Like that was that was like understood in all cultures as like a very honorable thing to do to go and die for your country. Because there was no, like, media portrayal of it. There were no images of it. You didn't actually have to face what it meant. Yeah. I mean, people just heard stories. And, uh, you know, especially something that happens after the Civil War is that we start to, um, I think the term was soldier's heart at the time, which is what we now refer to as, like, PTSD. Mm. But people came back. Civil War was, like, one of the first times where people came back from the war and were noticeably different. Yeah. but up until that point, like, you just hadn't seen uh, that kind of thing. Like, it was more... Uh, like, glamorized? Glamorized, mythologi- mythologized yeah. was the one I was thinking of. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why people would actually want to do this. And then, I guess the, the next question that I want to work into here is, how old are we talking? Yeah. And how many are we talking about, right? So... To delve into the, some of the specifics of yeah. that, uh, there's a, a great book that some of it was in the Smithsonian Magazine last year. The book's called Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War uh, by Francis Clark and Rebecca Joe Plant. They're both historians. And you were like, I got to get to that bookstore <laughs> and get that. It's very interesting. And I actually do want to get the book after I was reading about a lot of this stuff. Um, but they talked about how uh, a lot of uh, the soldiers, a lot of the kids who did join, most of them were 16 or 17 years old. Mm-hmm. They were 80%. So not, certainly not like 10 year olds, but not fully fledged adults yeah. in the eyes of the law. I was thinking that to myself because when you said that they rate, like they lowered the age from 21, I feel like a 21 year old usually looks quite different than a 16 year old. But an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old might look the same. Might look a little bit more similar. So it became mm-hmm. like a much easier threshold to pretend to be 18 than it is to pretend to be 21 when you're 16. Correct. Correct. Um, but there were more than, from what we understand to be, more than 200,000 soldiers on both sides under the age of 18. Wow. In the Civil Jeez. War, which... Um, you know, uh, some sources that I read said was about 10% of Union troops and likely about 10% of the Confederate troops that were fighting. Jeez. That feels like a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, more than 200,000. So when I read that line, I, I thought a lot about like the size of like a football stadium mm-hmm. being, you know, maybe 70,000 at most. 
Like that's a couple stadiums worth of <laughs> two football stadiums full of child soldiers. Yikes! Not good. Yeah. So I I think that uh, something we have to talk about now too is what what did their families think about all of this? Right. Just because they didn't have their consent doesn't mean that their families weren't aware of, mm-hmm. of these things. Um, so in that book I just mentioned uh, of age. Uh, Uh, had this to say, um, family members desperate for their sons' release from service confronted officers in military camps, petitioned elected representatives and government officials, and appealed to judges for writs of habeas corpus, which compelled military officers to appear in court alongside underage soldiers and defend their enlistment. Wow. When such efforts failed, many embarked on costly and often futile quests, chasing after regiments on the move, combing city streets near uh, enlistment offices, or even traveling to Washington to plead their case in person. So you had like mothers of some of these kids having to try to beg the military to let them go. And the government, because a lot of these kids like forged their paperwork Mm -hmm. or uh, somehow once they were in, they were in. Yeah. And the other component of this too is also that like uh, they were helpful in many ways. And I'll get to that also in a minute. Allie, you look like you want to say something. No, I don't want to say anything. I'm just so sad. You know? <laughs> it's just, it's also like... <sighs> so there's a, a, a something I read here from a, a soldier, uh, Elijah Stockwell, who, uh, quote, the captain got me in by lying a little. As I told the recruiting officer, I didn't know just how old I was, but thought I was 18. Mm. He didn't measure my height, but called me five feet, five inches high. I wasn't that tall two years later when I re-enlisted, but they let it go. So the records show that was my height. I told uh, my sister I had to go downtown. She said, hurry back for dinner. We'll soon be ready. But I didn't get back for two years. Wow. So something else that I think is important noting here is that there's a lot of historians who um, don't necessarily agree or think that like um, strong feelings about the actual causes of the war might have been related to this. Certainly there were some kids who wanted the who wanted to fight against slavery and mm-hmm. therefore join the union. But a lot of the boys, like boys will be boys. Like yeah. It was more about the prestige of battle or yeah. the respect that they thought they would have coming home as soldiers yeah they just wanted to play soldier it didn't like the cause actually didn't matter as yeah much. yeah so <laughs> is this too dark no, no it's great okay all right so what did they experience so i talked about a lot of the different things that some of these uh kids did in the military uh you know the, and you have to keep in mind even though that they weren't in fighting positions, per se, a lot something I read a lot about was how drummer boys were unarmed. Oh, they don't even get a gun, just they, a drum. They got a drum. I guess you can't hold a so, drum and a gun at the same time. You know, it was fine when things started out, but once the battle got going, they had to, you know, keep drumming. Well, they it was like they had to look out for themselves. Yeah, and no one. Yeah, like even like the nicest guy in the platoon isn't going to keep an eye out if he's getting shot at he's like sorry kid i need to i need to run yeah also isn't the drummer boy at the front that i'm not uh, unsure of we can cut that if that's not true (laughs) it's maybe useless but well consider this um from the national park service quote johnny cook enlisted as a bugler with battery b fourth united states artillery in 1862 during the maryland campaign 15 year old johnny served as a messenger at the Battle of Antietam, Johnny and his unit came under heavy fire from Confederate soldiers along the Hagerstown Pike near the infamous, quote, cornfield. When Johnny returned from helping his wounded commander to safety, he discovered that the soldiers serving on the cannon had been killed. Johnny began to load the cannon by himself until General John Gibbon rode by, saw what was happening, jumped off his horse, and began to help the brave young cannoneer. The Confederate soldiers came dangerously close, but Johnny and General Gibbon were able to man the cannon and push them back towards the West Woods. For his bravery Antietam, Johnny Cook became one of the youngest soldiers ever to receive the Medal of Honor. I mean, yeah, that's such a good, like, 
even if they're supposed to be drumming or bugling or whatever, like, if there's a fucking war going on around you... Load a cannon you, or two. You might have to hop into the war. I think I was just struck by the fact that he was left to his own devices, that yeah. everyone was gone, and to have the enemy advancing on you... Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is quite something. And it's, it, like, nice that he got a medal and everything, but it's also, like, yikes, why yeah. was he there in the first place? Yeah, yeah, like, that's the happiest ending of that story that could exist. I'm sure there are other similar stories, but it's, like, and then the enemy did advance, and oh, no. So, uh, also at the Battle of Antium, Charlie King was one of the youngest soldiers killed in the war, according to the Park Service. He was only 13 when he died in the battle. That's too small to be in a war. Way too small. So I also uh, consulted a couple of other um, uh, books and resources looking for quotes from some of these guys. So there's apparently a pretty uh, well-known book called uh, The Boys' War by Jim Murphy, uh, which again quotes Elijah Stockwell. Uh, Elijah says, as we lay there and the shells were flying over us, my thoughts went back to my home and I thought about what a foolish boy I was to run away to get into such a mess I was in. I would have been glad to have seen my father coming after me. Oh, and was he the one who was like, okay, sis, I'll be back for dinner in like an hour? Yeah, he was gone for two years. Oh my God. Um, I'm so upset by this. Why would you do this? I thought (laughs) the podcast was I'm horrified. I I mean, it is, but God. Not this horrified, Chris. That's so sad. Oh my god. It's 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 really pretty horrific. Yeah. Um, well, like, and even like in the in the horror of war, which I obviously know a ton about, <laughs> um, like even adult soldiers will be like, "Fuck, I wish I was home." Like for a child, for you know, when you're sixteen, fifteen, fucking thirteen, mm-hmm. I can only imagine like the feeling of like regret of like, oh shit. Uh, this isn't, like, playing, like, with my tin soldiers at all. Yeah, because I'm a fucking child in the middle of a war. But And you have to keep in mind that, you know, the military was aware of this issue, but kind of let it go under the rug because they were in need of, yeah. of soldiers, you know? Um, and I imagine as the time went on, the older soldiers, you know, were gone. Yeah, I mean, I don't have specific numbers on this, but... There's uh, a lot of material out there talking about how, uh, you know, the Civil War was fought by people of many ages, mm-hmm. um, especially when you, you consider that half of the country was fighting the other half. That's yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden half of your military in the South is no longer available to the Union to use in this war. And it was like it was like in your neighborhood. So it was like even if you might not sign up for a war that was over the ocean, if it's down the street from you, you might be like, I got to get into this war. Like, it's just mm-hmm. a different thing. I mean, outside of, uh, you know, terror attacks or, or Pearl Harbor, um, this is the like the last war to be fought on American soil, mm-hmm. too. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was thinking about all this and, and, and um, what it means about after the war and, and how this issue kind of played on in the 160 years since. And I mean, quite frankly, this kind of thing kept happening for a while. Uh, you look at World War II, lots of soldiers, thousands, tens of thousands of, of underage soldiers enlisted oh. um, to go overseas. And, and, you know, a lot of them forged their birth records to do that. Um Something I read, I, I forget the source, but it said that peaked in 1943, so only halfway through the war. But there was more than 50,000 uh, people detected as skirting the rules at that time. Oh, my God. Um, and that war was even more propagandized of, like, a glorious thing to go across uh, the sea. Uh, right. And again, to talk about yeah. Pearl Harbor again, that was, you know, not dissimilar to what we saw after 9-11, mm-hmm. which was people um, rallying around uh, a response a needed response to an attack on America. Uh, so um, something else that I, I wanted to touch on that I read is that while I think it became, you know, the government kind of clamped down more of it after World War II, I was reading about how um, the youngest American killed in Vietnam, according to New York Times, was a 15-year-old Dan Bullock. Uh, like, how did he get there? So he uh, forged his paperwork. Um, 
it, so uh, quote from this is from the Times quote Dan Bollock was born December twenty first, nineteen fifty three, when he enlisted in the Marines. Uh, last September eighteenth, he was fourteen. Um, Pentagon officials said his birth certificate had been adjusted to show the year as nineteen forty nine, so that he could pass for eighteen. Uh, and his parent and his family in the article it said that they his something along the lines of he was so enthusiastic about being in the military they didn't bother to fight it but he wasn't there and long until he was killed no i uh, mean these these gentle parents nowadays letting their children i know seriously sign up for vietnam just because they want to these kids have to have limits. There's got to be boundaries, Sam. There's I mean, got to be boundaries. So, I just can't imagine, like, my kids, like, I really want to go to war, and it's like, well, I... <laughs> he seemed really excited. You know, yeah, he seemed just, he seemed really into it. I don't, I didn't want to disappoint him. That's insane. So, you know, two other things to keep in mind. Uh, you know, last year marked 50 years since America kind of did away with the draft. Mm-hmm. Our, our military is fully volunteer now, which I think is always something uh, worth touting when talking about military service um and then the other thing too is that uh uh obviously i i mean i can't say this with a hundred percent certainly but obviously there are, are many uh there's methods in place now that <laughs> it'd be a much different story about forging documents and lying and whatnot there's many ways that the government can figure out who exactly you are yeah i, I don't know how people get away with crimes anymore i know it must be well, i don't know how people do crimes I was thinking about my grandfather is was a World War II vet, and we have like a bunch of his old paperwork. And my grandfather was born before Social Security, mm-hmm. so we have like the form he filled out to get Social Security, and he lied on that form. So like from then what did he on, lie about? he didn't really know who his father was, and he like made up a name on that form. Oh yikes! Um, and so we're like, yeah, back then like they were just establishing all these things. So like. All he had to do was one time be like, uh, this is the name of my parents. And then that's in his like super official record from then on because it didn't exist when he was born. It was somewhat easy to pull a full Don Draper and just do whatever it is that you want to do. Just be somebody else. Yeah. So that's that was the kind of the bow I tried to put on this to kind of Yeah, that we can't do that anymore. Um, you know, it's that that's kind of what happened, yeah. So the oh light God. part of you talking about children dying in war is um, there's not as many children dying in well, just in America. In the United States military, yes, but, right. You know, th- there's um, my understanding. There's also a lot of laws in uh, now the U.S. laws around how we actually don't even do work with any sort of uh, armed force that relies on minors. As we shouldn't, as I yeah. think that's the, the bare minimum. I don't us. think we get like a big high five. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's like we. Sh- yeah, that seems but, like pretty standard procedure. I mean, procedure. certainly in in other parts of the world, uh, I'm sure those lines are still blurred. Yeah, totally. That is such a bummer. That is very bleak. I'm really upset now. And at a time um, like this, don't you want to hold a loved one close? I'm bringing it back to Valentine's Day. I, I I'm bringing it back <laughs> to romance. I don't think... How do we get back to romance, Sam? Well, here's here's something. Chris, what excellent reporting. Thank you so much. Great job. For bringing this story to us, even though it is rightly horrifying, as is the title of our show. I love all of your weird, dark interests. <laughs> Back to romance. And how you'll sometimes just start, like, you, you'll get a new little 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 thing in your head, and you'll read, like, a bunch of think pieces about it, and you come down the stairs so excited, like, I was reading about this thing, and it's just, like, it to see you be so interested in things, even if they're horrible and <laughs> horrifying <laughs> like this was. Well, you know, kind of what I was saying to Adam a moment ago, outside the studio here. Right, right. Uh... There were a lot of things that I thought I could actually, like, if you ask me what I can talk about a lot about, they're not things that I felt had an, uh, a certain angle to them that mm. would be, uh, you know, interesting in this kind of way to fit the assignment that as it was given. Yes. No, I mean, you really delivered on, like, a, a, a bad situation. Yes. 
And that's what we've often said is like, what you should want from I am, and I am horrified is at the end of it, you feel like I got to Google that for three hours. Oh, I have to Google that for three hours. And I'm, I'm going to be in a Wikipedia rabbit hole from now on I, about child soldiers in the Civil War. I feel like I did a bit of a disservice only in the sense that there was so much stuff to read about this. There was so many books that, you know, uh, much people much more qualified than me have, have talked and written about this. And But I did want to point out, there's an entire Wikipedia page just around this one topic, specifically oh of children in the Civil War, or child soldiers in um, the American Civil War. And I'll be on part. that Wikipedia page tonight. Thanks to you, Chris. You're welcome. You did that for us. You're welcome. Tonight, Valentine's Day. Wow. Cuddle up with your husband, who we just spoke to. <laughs> and read. Um, and read. <laughs> the Wikipedia page. The Wikipedia page for children in the Civil War. Wow. I'm so, God, I, I'm so sorry, everyone, that uh, that uh, we have to do this to you. But it is what we do. It is. It is. And, and now we know, and we've learned from this episode to hold the ones you love close to not accept certain checks without uh, verification. Don't let your child uh, join the Civil War. Yeah, which if you didn't know that before, I'm glad you know that now. I'm a little worried that you didn't know. Yeah. Frankly. That's upsetting. But next time we'll teach you something even more upsetting. That I promise you. We we will always promise that. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And everyone, I'd like to say bye-bye, horror honeys. See you next Tuesday. I'm Horrified is recorded and produced by us, Sam Bierstow and Allie Gavin in Boston, Massachusetts. Our art is by Leah Brilliard and Allie Gavin. You can find us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod and at I'm Horrified And you can tell us what horrifies you at I'm Horrified Podcast at gmail.com. If you like hanging out with us, tell your friends, share us on your socials, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for stopping by, Horror Honeys.